Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, Coming Up For Air. Hello, everyone. This is Coming Up For Air. I'm Dominique Simone Levine. I am the director and founder of Allies in Recovery. You can find us online, alliesinrecovery.net. I'm here with Kayla Solomon, a wonderful, experienced crane craft clinician and substance use disorder clinician. Hello. Good morning. Lori McDougall is training a group for us today, so she won't be with us. What we're going to do this morning is talk a bit about how the components of craft line up with the ideas of treatment, the ideas of recovery. In this day right now, in the second full winter of COVID, where people are hurting and treatment is even more difficult than last winter, craft and the skills that you learn from craft have to carry many, many families right now. We're going to discuss today the components of craft and how they mirror many of the components of treatment that your loved one would receive if they were in treatment. So we're going to start first with something that you would want to start first with when you start doing craft, which is to get an idea of what your loved one may need in terms of formal and informal treatments essentially what you're going to have to become for us and for your family is a case manager. So you're going to have to be the glue that sort of puts together a treatment plan and ideas of where your loved one may go or do have access to, whether it's outpatient or inpatient. You are the case manager here. You're going to have to represent the connections that need to be made and help your loved one through them. Your loved one is not in good enough shape to find treatment on their own, to organize how to get into it. It can be very complicated. And to figure out what to do if one episode fails or stops and how it should connect to the next piece of the treatment continuum. Having said all that, we're very aware of the trouble all of us are having right now getting our loved ones into treatment. It's spectacularly bad. I think what's happened this winter, as different from last winter, is our, our healthcare workers are exhausted, absolutely exhausted. And we're seeing a lot of closures or limitations in census because of lack of staff. Can I jump in on the case management piece? Because I'm also a case manager as a social worker. That's one of the things that we do. And I feel like there's a few things that case managers need to think about. Number one is you need to get educated. You need to know what's available. You need to know why certain programs exist. Like, what are they there for? So, for example, like I've learned a lot just even being part of this program because there's inpatient treatment, there's outpatient treatment, there's therapy, individual therapy, there's family therapy, but there's also recovery coaches. There's also recovery programs. There's also 12-step programs. There's online, there's in-person You want to actually take the anxiety that you have about what does not, what you don't know, and just become educated. Not that you're going to be an actual case manager, which I think it's kind of 
sounding like that, but it's more about having knowledge and information. That's how I feel. The more I know, the more questions I ask, the more I make phone calls, the more I talk to people, the more random facts I have, random knowledge I have about what exists. And I think what makes me a particularly good manager is my ability to think out of the box. Okay. I think when you think, oh, this is the only thing that's going to help, or my person needs this, or they have to go there. And then when you come up against the dead end of there's no opening, or that person doesn't want to go there, or whatever the obstacle that's in your way, the more options you have, the more likely the person will say yes to one of them. So you want to keep pushing the envelope of what you know and your knowledge. So just keep getting information. And that's one of the things I like about the groups is because when we talk about these things, there's so much information that group members have experience with. And it's not that things are always successful. It's that they know what to try. They know that there's an option. They know what's out there. So case management is not this like linear, oh, I'm going to make a phone call and this person's getting in and it's the end of the story. It does not work that way at all. It's most likely you make a phone call, you come up against a barrier, and then you have to go to plan B. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and it's a short list. I'm sorry to say you're going to end up with a very short list. If you really push it to its extreme where is there a bed? Is there an opening? Is there a slot? The insurance, the timing, how he's going to get there, where he's going to live because he's in his car right now. I mean, there there there's so many questions that surround it that you, the family, are going to end up responsible for. And I think if you don't know case management, it's the glue between all of this. And every treatment, every program is very siloed in substance use disorder and in mental health. And people drop out. They get left out there with a paper referral and nowhere to go. So it's the family has to learn enough to be aware of sort of what is possible and what is out there. The rest of the time on this podcast, though, we're going to talk about not being able to get into treatment because that's what's happening to a lot of families right now. And so what can you do if your loved one can't access treatment? Well, Kayla kind of summed it up a few weeks ago by saying craft is treatment. The beginning of treatment. So shall I jump in? Okay, because I feel like as a clinician, there's this whole mysterious, you know, idea about what is treatment. Like somehow people step into the room and magically they get help. Magically, they start to work on themselves. Magically, they start dealing with their issues. And that has not been my experience. So I when I think about why, what is my purpose as a clinician? The most important thing is the relationship for me as a clinician. It is not, I feel like if that person does not trust me, does not communicate with me, does not tell me the truth, I am absolutely useless. Okay. So my job is to really, really work on the relationship piece of engaging and being open and listening and caring and attending to this person and allowing them to say whatever they say. And I just want, you know, people have said things to me that absolutely make my toes curl and I don't judge it. Okay. I'm just like, wow, that's really interesting. And you'll hear, if you've listened to any of the podcasts, you know, my two favorite words are curiosity and fascination. So when people present 
information to me or toe curling data. I want to know more. And instead of me responding with horrible, terrible affect, I just am like, really, tell me more about that. And I ask good questions and I and I'm interested and curious. And it's interesting because Dominique and I, before we started, we were talking about two different people that are having psychotic episodes right now and two family members that our loved ones are dealing with. So what happens is that when somebody is psychotic, you don't argue the truth with them. Okay. same thing with somebody who's dealing with substance use or mental health issues. You don't argue the truth with them. You don't give them advice. You don't tell them to get their stuff together. You go with it and you try to find out where they're coming from. Okay, that's part of this connection that I'm talking about. You want to go with people and hear what they have to say and let them talk and let them think and let them process out loud. And that is part of establishing this relationship. Now, I also know that there are lots and lots of folks that our family members are dealing with that don't talk. But part of the reason they don't talk is they're afraid to be judged. They feel ashamed and they they feel like what they have to say is just going to hurt you. So they don't talk. So the more you are going in open and interested and fascinated and not devastated by what you're being told, the more likely that person is going to speak. So that's part of this connection that we're talking about. And there are many, many ways that we talk about connection and craft, which is one of the things I love about it. We're not only talking and listening to these people, we're not giving advice. We hold the space, no matter what they're doing, to allow them to communicate. And we want to maintain a thread of connection no matter where these folks are at. Okay, so if your loved one is not communicating with you and then they communicate with you, you don't want to close doors. You want to keep the doors open so that they continue to stay in touch, because when they are ready to talk, you want them to come to you. Okay, when they are willing to ask for help, you want them to come to you. That's the whole idea with clinical work is that you don't expect that somebody is going to come in and tell you everything. But if you if you plant the, the field and water it, then one day when somebody's ready, they blossom, they speak to you, they communicate. So you want to hold space really safely without judgment. And that does not mean that if they call you and ask for money, you say yes. Or if they want something from you that you're going to say yes, that is not what we're talking about. You have good boundaries. You have clear communication. You let them know what you are and aren't going to do. But your word has to mean something. So you don't make any You don't present any consequences unless you're going to follow up with them because you have to have integrity in this process. Okay, that's another tool here, which is your word has to mean something. Yeah. So I know I've been going on. Is there anything? Well, it's it's fine if your loved one is non talkative and quiet and, you know, shut down in the way you're describing. But what what about the loved ones that are really sick of being cooped up, irritable, angry, talking, you know, following you around the house? We have a lot of families who have loved ones that are real talkers. And that seems to be to me the harder way to find a, a genuine connection when you're you're really struggling with the lack of calm and peace in the home. And when you're when you try to talk, it's you just get over overrun. This is also let's go to the therapeutic piece. I'm going to put on my clinician hat today, which is that I would say to people, I really want to have this conversation. I just want to give you full attention, and this is not a good time. Are you available later? Let's set up a time where we could really sit. I want to really hear you. 
I just don't have time right now and I don't want to give you only partial attention. I mean, no clinician on the planet would be able to do their job if we were available every minute that people want to talk. Right. Okay. We have boundaries. But what happens is that, listen to how I said it. I cannot do that right now, but I really want to listen to you. I just want to be fully present. So let's make a time where we can really sit and have this conversation because it really matters to me. So you're putting out words of connection. You're putting out words of I care. You're putting out words of you matter to me and I want to do this. But this is not a good time and I don't want to give you only partial attention. Right now I'm tired. Right now I'm busy. Yeah, it's so hard because with substance use, it's conversations are so negative, so vague, things have been, haven't been said. I'm working with a family, they won't even name the drug and it's been six months. Nobody's talking about the drug. I mean, it's, it's so stigmatizing for them to have this situation and that particular drug, right? Because they're pretty clear what drug he is on. So it seems to me that it's, it is so difficult to get that initial little bit of success when you're so worn down and things are so have so accumulated in terms of nasty, negative habits. So that goes to another part of this therapeutic process, which is the clinician has to have their own self-care. Okay, if you do not take care of yourself, you don't have the ability to do anything that we're saying. That's why we focus on self-care. It is selfish in the way that I love to put selfishness, which means that your self-care actually makes you a much better participant in your life for everybody else involved. But it also allows you to replenish yourself, refuel yourself, take care of yourself, do what you need to do so that you can think clearly, because without that, you're useless. And it's a responsibility to yourself and to others to be able to do self-care. So If you're feeling worn down, you have to take time and space to be able to do this piece. Self-care and the way Kraft talks about self-care or the way we do it at Allies in Recovery is multi-level, right? Because we're talking self-care in terms of little cognitive behavioral therapy or in reframing, which you'd like to talk to us about and and being able to catch yourself. So the work internally is self-care as well as potentially finding boundaries and protecting them and also taking the time for yourself to do things that are going to make you feel calmer and and more well. It's a lot of levels of of self-care, of communicating in the way that you're describing, connecting with your loved one in the way you're describing is probably the ultimate self-care. Yes, yes. And also that the goal is not the outcome. The goal is how are you engaging in the process? Because if you look at outcomes, then you're going to feel defeated on a regular basis. So if the outcome is this great conversation or your loved one says yes to treatment or you make a phone call and you find a good treatment provider that your loved one is going to call them at that moment and it's going to be a great match. And I'm actually cringing saying these things because it's so out there. But what happens is that there's little microscopic moments that are positive and you need to actually let that fill your soul. You need to make that count because every positive change counts. Everything microscopic, it counts. And I think a lot of times we're like, well, that was nice, but you know, or you ask somebody, you know, what's going well or what are you doing that's that's good? And they can't think of anything because they're looking for the outcome, not the small change that they made. 
And I'm going to do a quick a quick little blurb about reframing. And I personally would like to do a whole a whole podcast on reframing, but it's my number one tool, reframing. I could not continue to be a, a substance use specialist if I was not a reframer, because <laughs> really, if I look at outcomes, I'm terrible. <laughs> but I love the process. The outcome for us is is that our, our loved one finds some peace and a way of life that fills them and and that we can accept and find peace with ourselves. So it's, you know, whether or not they continue to use drugs, whether or not they they continue to take their mental health medication, what's going to matter in the long run is what we're talking about now, because this is what creates the filling of the soul for both, both you and your loved one. This is true connection and love. This is what we should dope over not having true connection and love. I can tell you. So it's like, exactly. So give it to us. Okay. So, so the reframe, okay. My, my 10 second description is no matter what is happening, you could take that situation and find something good in it. It does not matter how tragic, horrible, torturous, the situation is, or you're even how you're feeling. It's about taking what's going on and reframing it. So an example that I would give is the resiliency theory, which is years ago, I went to a resiliency workshop and the definition of it, of resiliency is stronger in the broken places. That's a reframe. There's a book by that name. Exactly. And I'm sure that's the person that I heard speak. But it's too many years ago. I have no recall about that. But the one thing I remember is that they use the description of when you break a bone. What happens is if you when you break a bone, the place that it knits back together, that little strand that knits your bone back together is actually stronger than the rest of your bone. Because that knitting is very, very strong glue in that spot which is why they have to completely break it if they do it wrong, because it's so tight that it's actually stronger than the rest of your bone. So what happens is that if you think about all the hardship, all the difficulty that you're having, making you strong, allowing you to find things that you would never have found before, allowing for connection that you would not have noticed. The other way that I put it is that nobody grows when they're comfortable. Nobody. If everything's fine, There's no growth because why would you bother? That's ridiculous. When people come in to see me and they're like, I'm a mess. I'm having a breakdown. My life is terrible. I say, great. It's kind of like when couples come in. I had a couple come in once years ago and I'm like, oh, so why are you here? Oh, we're great. We just we're great. I'm like, well, what are you doing here? You know, how could I help you if you're fine? But the people who come in and like, we're a mess. We don't know what to do. We hate each other. We might divorce. I know that those are the people that are going to be open to change. Hopefully when things are difficult, that's when you have the largest opportunity for change, which is why in all the 12 step programs, they talk about hitting bottom. People sometimes will change when they hit bottom because there's no place to go. They're stuck. And when you're stuck, you have a shot at change. So you can take any moment in your life and shift it to see what's good about it, to see what's positive, to see what's hopeful, to see what growth possibilities there are. And that's the reframe. You know, you could look at a situation where you're evaluating what happened 
and it could be horrible, but there is one tiny little thing that you did differently or that you feel good about. That's what you're going to focus on. And the reframe is the focus on what's good about it. It's so hard. That's where the hope is. Okay. That's where the hope is. And it's the thing that we do not have as a skill most of the time. Absolutely. And when you're distraught, it's gone. Well, and the whole premise of craft and the brilliance of craft was simply to change the conversation from, you know, don't enable use to enable non-use by rewarding, by being positive, by being loving and connected, right? So it's not a large leap from what you said to the fact that if you start to look for those tiny, tiny little positive things that you you notice and you say, hey, that was sweet. I love that when you do that. You know, it's you're more likely to see it again because we do things that are rewarding for us and your connection, your notice, your attention to me in that moment was all I needed. So if you catch it in your loved one and you gently sort of support it, it's it's not just the hitting the bottom. It's also reaching for something, a wish, something you don't have. It's this potential of something rewarding. That's the positive for us. And, and the work for families in reframing the idea that, you know, all they're seeing is addiction and, and all they have to do is step away from that to No, you have to notice those little moments of what's going right in yourself and in your loved one. And you have to step in and you have to love on it and you have to you have to notice it and you have to make it happen again if you can. If you can, why not? If all it took was noticing it and he did it again because you did, occasionally noticing it will probably keep that behavior going because he enjoyed your attention. And so that is the reward. And it all fits together from a behavioral standpoint, too, which um, is the other big piece of craft is you become this behaviorist, right? You step in when you don't see use. You step away when you do see use. And you do it in this very gentle way from day to day. You're not throwing them out, not talking to them for six months. It's literally the difference between your loved one comes home not using and you assess that at the door and you go, hey, it's nice to see you home. Listen, I've got the the pizza menu. I thought we'd call for some takeout. Just call Sal is on tonight. Let's have a pizza and watch TV. One of our favorite things to do together, right? But your loved one comes home and he does look high or she does look high. It's like, hey, I'm glad you're home safe. Good night. That's it. All we did was remove rewards in that moment. There was nothing shocking about it, but it made a big difference in your loved one who sort of was left at the door going, what's going on? What happened to mom? What happened to my wife? She always just starts at me when I look like this and she still wants to have pizza. And it's, you know, and she's nagging about not being able to enjoy her evening. And, and you know, it's it's all of that sort of thing that typically goes on that just goes south. So we're back to the beginning, which is the moment of communication, the moment of noticing the little things as a way to get to the bigger things that emerge, that open, that get lit up, that get this gentle sort of shepherding, if you will, of what you want to see in your loved one. And how to be effective at getting it. And also, if you're not confronting and challenging and questioning and being annoying, then you also take yourself out of the role of the being the problem. 
because so many times like you're so annoying and leave me alone and blah, blah, blah. But if you're not doing that, if you're removing that negative behavior on your own, then that leaves the person knowing that they are the one with the issue. There's no one to point to. And you are usually the one they point to. I'm sure you'll tell me that if you're listening, because you're the one engaged. You're the one hanging with them. You're the one doing the work with them. And so you are the problem. And so back away and let them think who else might be the problem, just even for a little bit, just even for a little bit. It's so much stronger if it comes out of their mouths or is the question they ask themselves than it is if you are pointing out that they are the problem, because that gets you zero, right? That gets you, puts your loved one up against the wall or defending their right to do whatever they were just doing. So we're teaching a training right now and and it's lovely because we have a, a few people that is like, just tell him to move his sh- dirty shoes and put them, you know, and we're going, no, you know, I know it's hard. You come home, you're tired and you've got your dirty shoes. But if, you know, I'm going to put some some slippers by the entrance. So maybe if you took your shoes off, you could just slip into the slippers. Oh, my gosh. I have families that are going, are you kidding? I have to sound like that. Well, that's kind of it. That's kind of how you get the dirty shoes, not tramping through the house. And it works And so the old way of confronting or being authoritative or saying, you know, my house, don't walk around with dirty shoes and saying it over and over and over again. No, you do it carefully. You do it with thought and then you hold the line. But also you do with care because what you're saying is that's a caring behavior, but it's not you having to do something that's a heavy lift. It's a subtle thing. And it's but I, I also think that what you're saying is that we're talking about all of us changing behavior. So you're asking your loved one to change your behavior, but it starts with you. So you get to model, oh, I could change. I'm going to do this differently. And I feel like what we're teaching here is that we're looking at connection and then we're looking at disconnect in a loving way. When somebody's using, you disconnect, you don't move in, you move out, you back up. And what that allows is the person the space to process quietly on their own, or maybe not so quietly, but it's not about you. It's about themselves. And and people then get uncomfortable because it's uncomfortable to have the love withdrawn. And that's what you're doing, but not harshly, just subtly. Absolutely. Everything is subtle. And, you know, even if you nag and carry on and have done so, however you have in your patterns, We all have them stopping that, stopping any of it and just backing away is a real shock to your loved one, to the person that you're in connection with. Does a serious change in the dynamic. So stepping away and not giving love, but also not all the other things that they're used to that just reminds them that you're in their pocket, that mom's still screaming and nagging and carrying on. And I just need to shut her out like I usually do. It just usually does die off. And it's an opportunity to to avoid all that bad stuff that you would normally do too in that moment and not give it to them because that also signals that things are normal and you're signaling that things are no longer normal. We're on a new platform and we're going to win this and it's called craft and it's going to be so gentle and loving. You're hardly going to notice it happened. But it's going to make such a transformational shift in the dynamic at home that 70% of your loved ones will go to treatment, you know, will do the next right thing to try and improve their life. So we've been all over the place 
uh, Kayla, but I do, think, I do think <laughs> we've stayed mostly on the really important skills that you would learn if you practice craft and can appreciate some of the successes from it. Can you sum up for us? Yeah, well, what we're talking about here is if craft is the beginning of treatment and if you have the ability to create that dynamic of being the beginning of treatment, treatment being connection, treatment being openness and curiosity, treatment being modeling change, and also treatment is that instead of you're focusing on what the loved one is going to do, you're creating um, a case management strategy that you're doing on your own without talking to them about, but that's what you're doing with this kind of anxious energy is you're, you're researching and you're learning about what's out there. That's what you get to do as opposed to trying to tell them what to do. This is your work. And you, then you have it available, whatever two resources you wind up with at the end, but then you become educated. So you're doing what you can do on your own. And then what you're doing with your loved one is just changing the dynamic and going for connection. And that is the beginning of treatment is being open to somebody and not judging them and not telling them what to do or giving them advice. And come to allies and support when you feel like you're dragging because the other thing I think families really need from them that they get from craft is connection to somebody else that can understand what they're, what they're going through. And we do that. Your support groups, Lori's support groups, our training modules, everything on the site is there in order for you to be able to turn at any time, day or night and, and get a little relief. And know that you're not alone. And know that you're not alone. You're not alone. Thanks, Kayla. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.